Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. You can't build a business off of a plan to get lucky. I don't know how long people are going to put up with brewers selling them $24 four-pack of sugary fruit syrup supported uh, the cheapest malt-based beverage they could whip out of brew. Adam Cole got the call that so very many people in this industry can only dream of. Some rich asshole picked up the phone and tagged Adam to help him open an overbuilt, beautiful facility with a high-end restaurant. He had to design the brewery, pick out the equipment, set his brew schedule, and design his own recipes. But best of all, he was given sweat equity for his investment of intelligence, effort, and management. He was part of the ownership structure and everything that that comes with it. The brewery opened, the beer started flowing, and customers started drinking. Like a lot. They were off to a solid start. But I have a podcast because of what came next. You know, the part where the nightmare started. The cost skyrocketed, labor was a mess, sales plateaued, then they declined, partners left, the restaurant closed, then the rich asshole bolted to Florida. I'm gonna let Adam tell it from his perspective, but it's a unique story from the other 40-something or so that I have shared with y'all. But here is the story of Adam Cole and the newfangled brew works from Harrisburg, PA. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm gonna hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. Brewbids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbiz.com right now, creating your account and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brew bids, and get busy making beer. Adam, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a long, slow, and thoughtful fuck about helping all my guests be better in their careers today, which, if you've heard the podcast, you know is my goofy way of welcoming you to the show. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It, it should be fun. Either way, I, I want to make sure we have fun. I have a real job, and so this is supposed to be my passion and my fun. So yes, talk some shit, get some out there, and let's, let's have I'm a little bit of I'm still trying to find a real job at this point. Yeah, well, good luck. Maybe we can help you. We'll put your uh, email on there. Recruiters will reach out. So, yeah, we'll see. Well, tell me what brought you here. Like, how did you get started in the booze biz? Like, what were you, did you want to be when you grow up and all that kind of stuff? Like, who are you, Adam? I have a really strange path into the industry and the system. I was active duty Air Force explosive ordnance disposal. I joined in 2002, got out in 2008, kind of looked at the brewing industry as a means 
to maybe get a job, but I was going to really work from the lab side of things in QA. So I got a biotechnology degree okay. and I started doing uh, like internship QA work for a, a small Pennsylvania regional brewery, Appalachian Brewing Company, headquartered out of Harrisburg. I think they had four or five locations at the time. They didn't have a QA person working there. So I was kind of like my own internship supervisor. No one knew more than you about what you were doing. Right. So you can kind of do whatever. Yeah, I, was like, I gave them like yeast counts and contamination. I did like yeast contamination testing. And the brewer that was there like never listened to anything I did. It was like, so what was the yeast count like? And I said, it's like two and a half billion cells per milliliter. I was like, you have to pitch like three quarters of a barrel volume wise of yeast. And he would put like three barrels and then wonder why his viability was bad. Four pitches later, I'm like, well, cause you're, you're overusing your yeast like majorly. So anyway, that was the beginning of it. And they had a guy there that wanted to be a brewer in the worst way, but he kind of sucked at it. He didn't understand the stuff mechanically. He didn't understand the pumps and what the turnbacks were for and low pass, <laughs> I guess. So they kind of said, hey, do you think you can figure this out? And I said, can't be that hard. I don't know how to do plumbing. And I worked on a robot. Brewing system seems kind of simple. And it couldn't have been designed by someone too intelligent, so it should, should be easy to figure out. Yeah, I mean, it's, they're basically giant stainless steel buckets with tubes connected to them and a couple motors. Pretty simplistic when you really step back from most of the setups, especially the 100% manual ones. It's like, how do you not know how to? But I guess some people just lack a very strong mechanical understanding of I kind of stepped into the brew house and did QA work at that point. What happened after that? I know you worked at some other breweries before you started your own. Yeah. So I worked at uh, Appalachian Brewing Company. That was kind of like my introduction to the industry. Like I was doing an unpaid internship with college. And then after graduating, I was there full time. The guy that was head brewer just drove me crazy. Harrisburg water is practically reverse osmosis. And he were like refused to put minerals in it to make it better. Tailor the mash water pH wise to the beer he was brewing. And with me having more of a science way background, it just, it drove fucking crazy. I ultimately started looking elsewhere to go work. And I found a job with Victory in Downingtown. So I went and took a job at Victory. I think it was originally I was supposed to be slated to be in the bottling department, watching bottles just fly by for eight hours at a time. But Taking your soul director, and will to live with them as they went? Like, oh, oh yeah. They, the guys down there, like, I love the dudes that work in the bottling department. Some of them, I don't know how they did it. Mind-numbing, like Laverne and Shirley. Like they're watching an endless line of brown glass. <laughs> putting labels onto these the labelers because they use that cold like glue which is not at all the dream people think of when they think about making beer but someone's no, got a job it, it's, it's kind of a weird position but the director of operations at the time used to work at Appalachian Brewing Company mm. and found out that I'm a brewer there and promoted me into the cellar department through the hiring process so I started running the centrifuge and filtration setup. I was, I was a sellerman for Victory. There was, you know, there was a lead seller, like supervisor, and then one guy on shift ever. So if you're on second and third shift, you're just kind of on your own. You and the brew house guy. Yeah. And if you're working at night, it's just you and the brew house guy in the building. Two people working the entire brewery. And after basically two years of rotating shifts and opening the Parksburg facility that they have now, that they probably also brew Southern Tier at and Six Point, I got a job back at Appalachian as their head brewer because I never moved. I stayed in Harrisburg and was commuting an hour and like 15 minutes away. I was either going to move or it wasn't going to be permanent. Kind of ended up there longer than I planned. So I got back to Appalachian. And at the time, it was kind of funny. I was trying to get out of the brewing industry at that point. So this is actually going to be one of my questions. So we normally interview, I mean, I see normally, it's the stories of guys in our position are typically either a home brewer that got started or somebody who was just a rich asshole who just decided this would be a fun gig. You actually right. 
looked behind the curtain. You carried the fucking hose. You, you spilled caustic on your hand and you still decided to open a brewery. But this is my question. You were deciding you might want to leave. Why? What, why did you decide it may not be for you at that point? I was tired of doing rotating shifts at Victory. Just the grind of it and... Nothing fucks your sleep up more than doing one thing for four weeks and then living another life for four weeks and then living another life for four weeks. Like first, the skin are tolerable because like second, you still get home and like go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning. But third shift, it was 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Terrible. I've always thought that was a weird life because then you're... you're tired when everyone else is kind of like off work and you're about to go to work when they are going to sleep and uh, just kind of right. weird. I, I was, I'm married. I, I, I only had a wife at the time. I have kids now, but second shift, I never saw my wife. Third shift, I saw her for like dinner. I would get home on Friday morning after my shift because the shift would start Sunday night at 10 p.m., 10 p.m. to 6, and then I'd be done Friday morning. I would take a nap for like three hours, and I'd live the weekend like a normal person, and I'd take a nap in the middle of the day Sunday and go to work for the night. So you decided you were thinking about leaving, but you didn't. Yeah. You uh, well, saw the door, and you made the mistake of turning back around. What changed your mind? Kind of because of the thing that I was trying to leave to go to was like the longest hiring process probably known man and that was to go work for the alcohol tobacco firearm agency oh you wanted yeah. to be the asshole we all hate and so i get it <laughs> well i wouldn't be working for the ttb they wouldn't be because of my closest background right yeah that's true so i would have to run around and do I don't, I don't know what in reality i would have been probably busting drug dealers with guns rather than dealing with explosives like i wanted to again so anyway it was like the longest hiring process ever and then this is how I ended up opening my own place. I'm working at Appalachian, still trying to get out of the brewing industry. And a friend calls me. I'm standing in a grocery store. Says this guy who's a real estate developer is looking for a brewer. Can I give him your number? And I said, yeah, sure. I'll go meet him and see what they're doing and probably just give them somebody else's phone number that might be able to help them out better. And it ended up being a pretty big plate of scale that I thought I would actually be useful for. And originally I was supposed to work with the real estate developer and he was gonna be the owner slash whatever owner operator. And I was gonna be the brewer and get, if there ever was profit, profit share, minor ownership in the business from a split equity perspective. And he wheeled and dealed with somebody that else was approaching him to buy property to do. And he kept saying, I already got everything ready in this building. Like it's already designed. I got a brewer. He knows what to build. He's already chased a bunch of equipment quotes. You know how much the kegs are going to cost. And so he sold this guy on taking the building starting the brewery because he kind of worked with the county and the local township, the local municipality here in Pennsylvania to kind of say like, well, yeah, I'm going to build this huge, well, it's like 400 roof housing development. And they wanted him to have commercial space in the middle of it. So they must have told him, well, why don't you guys put a brewery in? He had a brewery already lined up, ready to take it. And they backed out because of they either didn't want to do it or the story that I got was that they, w they couldn't get out of their existing lease. Oh, was somebody supposed to move to it? Yeah, they were supposed to move into it. And it's a fairly established brewery in the Harrisburg area, the region. I just think they got cold feet based off of the cost of base and the demographics of the local area. Because they have a pretty good business where they're at now, which they're also getting forced out of poetically. Mm, I have a feeling that that's going to be a song on repeat over the next few years. But yeah, that sucks. Yeah, there's their commercial space that they're in. There's a whole bunch of different commercial entities where they're at is getting redeveloped into more residential space. I guess it's more lucrative to have hmm. houses sold that collect rent from 10 places. That makes so, sense, especially if it's already in the middle of the residential plot. They were developing something behind where they're at. 
into more residential housing. I don't even know if there's going to be houses where they're losing their lease. It might be a tennis court. It's some amenity for the houses. Yeah, it's going to be something for the homes or whatever. Who knows? Where you were, I looked it up. It's actually a pretty badass little building, and the setup is pretty cool. And it's sort of right in the middle of this huge residential area, right? The idea is... You have a shitload of people or, who can kind of walk almost or ride a bike to your place like it's on the way home? Yeah, yeah. That's the idea. The idea. And I assume that it was exceedingly expensive. I don't know. It sounds like in the beginning, Real Estate Boy was the kind of the driving force of the cost structure or whatever. But do you even know like what he was uh, quoted? The cost per square foot was like 14, I think. The building's 12,000 square feet. Big, so right? like all this. Yeah, we were like, it was like 14.5. And then because of the triple net lease, we were like, we were looking at like 16.5 a month. It's a lot of six dollar clients. Yes, it is. When we opened, we weren't just a brewery. We ended up attracting this insane chef. Excuse me if I'm repeating myself. It was a kind of a joke from a friend of mine. Said insane chef. He goes, "Don't you aren't you saying the exact same thing twice?" Oh yeah, it's redundant. Same crazy ass coke fiend chef. (laughs) Yeah, you might know the guy that I worked with. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the the coda thing, right? The yeah, that was the restaurant that was next door. So they wanted to be this like high-end French-inspired restaurant, it was kind of like the building was too big to be one thing. So they came up with this great idea that will have what appears to be a separate business. It was just another DBA for the LLC operating in the building under the brewery manufacturing license. Hmm. The problem with it is you can't run a nice high-end restaurant without being able to buy wine and liquor that's not made in Pennsylvania. Oh, because of the nature of the license, they couldn't do that? Right. So in Pennsylvania, 2017, they passed, you know, whatever, Act 47 or something like that. I forget what the number is. It said that all manufacturing licenses of alcohol in Pennsylvania can carry each other's products so long as the sales of your manufactured product remains over 50% of your alcohol revenue. So I could carry whiskey from the, you know, bourbon distillery that was in Lebanon and moved to Hershey called Hidden Still. Uh, or I could carry liquor from the place that I'm helping out at now, Tattered Flag in Middletown. I could carry wine from whatever, you know, Pennsylvania wineries there were to choose from. But it's not like you're getting $100 Bordeaux to sell people at the dinner table. It's a lot more education with the local stuff. And just someone comes in asking for a cab, you can't really solve that problem with local PA stuff. Right. No, I mean, I'm right. sure not well. I got this state wine from a place in Lancaster County. It's not a cab franc. It's a it's a cab Shiraz, Shiraz Merlot with a bit of Tempranillo skins. What does that taste like? It's Shut up, buy it. I don't care. Yeah. Buy it. Yeah. So, so was that, that a was decision the, that you made to, to carry other people's stuff or is that sort of like all happened during the period and you were like, well, let's just take advantage of it. My partner, that was, you know, the money man behind wanting to start the brewery was attracted to the concept of it because I guess he thought that he could make money with a bar slash restaurant at some point. And then he's like, well, I might as well make my own beer and I kind of get a liquor license with it without having to pay for in Pennsylvania the liquor licenses are sold for like pretty good money. If you want a liquor license, they're $150,000, So there's some inherent value in that. Yeah, a piece of paper, basically. But so it's one of, those, one of those questions I like to ask everybody is what was sort of the need to exist of the brewery? Like what what is your competitive position in the marketplace? And no offense, but it sounds like his is very similar to kind of what most of ours was. <laughs> is, uh, oh, yeah. Was, I, I, I wanted, wanted brewery. to open a brewery. He wanted to open a brewery. Yeah. yeah. It didn't necessarily make sense as far as the overall scheme of the marketplace. But hey, I really want to do this and I have enough money to do it. So I'm going to fucking do it. That's kind of exactly what it was and. So they got me on and I was like, well, I can help you do this. We can kind of put our ear to the ground and see what people want. But like the things that I like from a beer perspective that I'm kind of like passionate about or into, it's not something I can sell with that being, 
I think something that you did and guys from Saint somewhere mixed fermentation Belgian stuff. Nobody gives a fuck about them. No, we can clearly show that on paper that they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I um, made like one Belgian beer a year and it lasted all year. Really? 30K. So, so how did you decide what your lineup was going to be? Uh, when it came to that, did he give you carte blanche? Did you sort of have to make? We kind of like, we kind of picked and choose. I felt like there was a lack of like craft Pilsner lager kind of representation in the area because a lot of the guys were small, didn't have steam systems. And I kind of think that steam's like a real important part of making decent loggers. Mm-hmm. You can make good ones with direct fire and electric, but there's just something about them. Like there's like the extra caramel character from the intense heat that you get from the, the burner or from the electric element that you don't get with the lower temperature of steam. So we made a Pilsner, we made a lager. And I mean, it was basically just an adjunct lager, but we still was cracked, right? Yeah, so, right. but it was made by hand. Right. I, I made it with 70% malt and 20-something percent, you know, like 75% malt, 25% dextrose in a bag because he wanted me to make a beer that tastes something like Modelo. So I did my best to make beer taste like cheap, mass-produced adjunct locker. Without all the, the chemical sequence. preservatives in it, I'm, which probably yeah. would have made it better if he had done that. More, more similar, I guess, more. Right. So the, the secret that I found to it was like I tried flaked rice, I tried flaked corn, the bag of dextrose. Did it just fine. Way easier. Yeah. Do your match, dump it in the kettle, get your 4.75% alcohol and move on with life. So did you um, have an idea of package versus distro? Was there any plan to really do that at this so point? We kind of had a plan in the beginning. So because of the, the laws that they passed in 2017, you also, in addition to the ability to carry other products, it allowed you licensing for an additional two locations. So you were allowed to open your manufacturing facility and then like have two other brew pubs. Mm-hmm. They call them storage licenses. So you could run a full other tap room and restaurant. So you could sell another 200 barrels out of another spot. You know, you're doing 200 barrels more direct retail, which is pretty good for the bottom line. So the thought was we could open two of them, maybe 200 barrels each a year, in addition to the main facility at maybe 600 barrels a year. So we had the place, I kind of specced the brew house out for a pace of about a thousand barrels a year of me being the full-time only brewer. I would have been busy. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot. You wouldn't have had much of a life on weekends and holidays. I would have been brewing, moving beer. And in the beginning, I was busy every day doing something with beer. And then COVID happened and I did nothing a lot. (laughs) Well, we're going to get to that part in the uh, second segment. I want to ask one other question about the equipment. Did he already have that picked before you started or did you actually pick the equipment? He and I went together and went to CBC in Nashville, 2018. The year we opened, I mean, this was a fast moving project. Hmm. I met with the builder in October of 2017. I met with the guy who was going to become the owner and uh, basically the financer for the business in like February of 2018. We went to CBC whenever that happened. Like April, April May is when he adds. Spring. We had an order in for equipment in May and it was supposed to be delivered by September. Did it make it? Fuck. No. I was like, no one got shit that fast that I've ever heard of. Maybe no, if it place, was the demo piece at CBC. <laughs> but. Dude, it was that these guys were like, oh, yeah, we could do it. And in fact, I talked to somebody else that ordered from them. And the claim was that their brew house was ready in three months. And they were waiting on their building to be finished to ship it. And I'm sitting here with a building ready to accept it in July. Like I had a roof and doors. It was a new construction project. And I went out to go see everything on the first week of September before it was supposed to ship. And 
the guy who was the project manager for my equipment at the company, it was, uh, they're out of Illinois, Crawford Brewing. I'm going to throw them under the bus. They fucked us by like 16 weeks. What was it? Crawford? Crawford Brewing. Hmm. They've, they're like a big commercial HVAC company. Oh, okay. So they have, they have like 30 foot wide laser welding beds and shit. They do HVAC, like commercial HVAC stuff for like DOD projects. And they just thought how hard could it be to manufacture brewing equipment? I think some guy, their first brewing equipment was approached to them by some local guy and they said, oh yeah, we could make that. So they made a two vessel, you know, kettle whirlpool, mash ladder ton, brew deck, basically. I asked if they had ever made a mash ton with a separate ladder ton and then kettle roll pull. And I said, yeah, we've done that. And when I got my ladder ton, it had the biggest fucking cone underneath the screen. Like it was like practically a fermenter cone. And they gave me a P-trap what? in my ladder ton. Wait, uh, who designed like that? They did. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense because they don't know how to make brewing equipment. Yeah, but even if you tried to use it once, you'd know that it wasn't right. <laughs> like it's not going to do they, it. They had never used a ladder ton. They had only used their mash ladder time to set up. They, had, they matched the, the top and the bottom of the same dish, so they would only have to, they wouldn't have to change dies or anything. Mm. They would pop and they'd press the bottom and cut holes as well, whatever. There, there is some brilliance in what they're doing, and it was well-crafted equipment. They just don't know how to make Maybe they're better now if they're still doing it, um, but they didn't know how to make a brew house. Yeah, the engineering or, side. They didn't know how to make you know, sanitary piping, which a lot of places don't know how to make sanitary piping. So. <laughs> I don't think it's very, uh, very common knowledge or at least not spread around too much. Those that know how to do it, keep it close to their chest. The rest of them were like, well, this isn't that hard. We could swing this together. So we bought the equipment the year we opened. We ordered it six months before we opened. Brought it in, hooked it up, started making stuff with it. So you had experience and obviously a new new equipment, new facility, new water, all whatever is a challenge. So how was your quality out of the gates? How long did it take you before you were like, okay, I got it right. I figured this shit out on this system. I mean, the first batch was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't like too much of a learning curve. I actually, I sent the ladder ton back after like five batches. I put it on a trailer and said, you guys got to put like a flat bottom on this or something. Like this is ridiculous. Did they? Yeah, they did. I paid for shipping to them. They did the work and paid the shipping back and it didn't cost me anything extra. So, I mean, they tried to make right what was wrong. And we, I mean, I also kind of like negotiated a little bit of a delay penalty because of, I don't know. They, they claimed that one of their employees was lying to them about us having a, a building that was ready to accept it. I'm like, so I was like, dude, I, I'm going to have people in the bar next week. What do you mean I don't have a building that's ready? Yeah, that's done, done. We're already looking for the second location. Get off your ass. <laughs> yeah, come on. Like, so we put everything together. I We had an RO water system because our water supply was variable source. It's either well, and it depends on what well they need to pull from at the time, or the river. Dramatically different water profiles. So I just said, for the brewing water, let's just use an RO system. So we lease like a 10,000 gallon a day RO unit. And I used the cold liquor tank as a reservoir. We filtered that. It, filled, it refilled while I was home asleep. I had a shutoff switch float at the top of the tank and it was cold and ready to go the next day. Okay. I got triple size tanks. So I got 45 barrel cold liquor and hot liquor tanks to go with a 15 barrel brew house. Because one of the things I always hated was like waiting for something to recover. Yeah, Another, before you could brew and then this drags yeah. on and that screws up your whole yep. schedule. So how did you decide on 15 barrels was that based on the output that 
homeboy had yeah, his business it was, plan? It was based off of having the three locations and trying to maintain production with me as the sole brewing labor as much as possible. Okay. So Sort of an intuitive system that wow. you could stand in more or less one place and kind of control. Yeah, I mean, it was all manual, but along with the fermenters, we actually got the fermenters from a company in Texas, Theaterstone Industry. The story was that in 2018, uh, like a daughter company of some kind of international tank manufacturer that set up outside of Houston, I believe, and they started trying to cater to the craft brewing industry and medical research and stuff like that in the United States. A bit. I mean, they're really nice tanks. They were ASAB certified pressure vessels, you know, 30 pounds. They're heavy as hell, four inches of insulation. They had a really cool racking arm that you didn't have to loosen a nut or a TC fitting to turn it. They stayed clean inside. They're a nice tank. They came with Kieselman spunding valves, you know, like the nice stainless steel pearl example ports, 310 gauges. It was a nice setup. So you had you had great equipment. You had a great yep. building. You yep. rushed. And everything worked well. You rushed to get open, and um, we're going to take a quick break, and then I want to hear about how that went. But it looked like you basically opened that same year. That, that was November of this of the same year? Correct. We went from ordering equipment at CBC in April, May. We had the order in, put the deposit down to market after Thanksgiving. Well, cool. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to hear about how that opening went. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to accubrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. So, so you, you get open, you've got beer in the tanks. Do you remember how many different beers you had on tap the first day? Well, really none. The funny thing was the delay of my actual brew house, it wasn't delivered until December. Okay. So you opened November 27th with no equipment. What'd you do? We sold other people's beer. We were just a bar. Okay. I had two beers. We had like a one barrel system that kind of saved our ass in a sense. Like we were a brewery, right? Mm-hmm. I couldn't produce any appreciable amounts of beer because after loss and everything, I'm looking at, if I'm lucky, a half barrel and two pistols out of that stupid little setup. And I was the construction crew for all the refrigeration piping. I put in all my refrigeration piping myself and, you know, set the tanks and I did all the final wiring hookups. And, you know, I had a, another guy helping me. We, we hung like, the grain conveyance and I hung the grist case above the mash tun. And I actually installed the boiler myself and commissioned that. And then my friend who does industrial maintenance and welding did the piping system for the seat. Like that's his job or he just helped you do it or whatever? No, that's his, like he has a business. He does like custom fabrication, industrial maintenance, things like that. He, basically, he's like a contract maintenance guy for a big chicken plant here in Pennsylvania. Uh, Money fitted so- chicken. So he gave you a hell of a smoking deal running steam lines? Oh, uh, I mean, as good as he could. Like, he was kind of disappointed how expensive it was still. 
like he thought he was going to give me a pretty good deal. Like he's like, what I would have charged somebody else would have probably been two or three times this for labor. Just the pipe itself is fourteen thousand dollars. Yeah, that that was one of the. I actually spent as much running steam lines as I did buying the boiler, and I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. It actually might have been slightly yeah. more by the end, but yeah, my boiler was. 27 i think all in somebody in the, the design of the steam system i think they assumed my boiler was going to be sitting like six feet away from the brew house <laughs> not 60 feet away from it in like the utility room so they didn't give me a feed water tank slash they gave me a feed water tank kind of but it was more of a condensate receiver on the back side right so i got and their brew system was like pretty low to the ground so i had to get some kind of like stupid low profile thing it's actually made in pennsylvania by ship code outside of carlisle pennsylvania i mean of course i can't buy it direct right maybe three, you know, three only, middlemen they're 25 miles away i can't just say hey ship code give me this and go pick it up because you know the way these parts are distributed so i had to put that in but it was set up to be a feed water tank not a condensate return so i had to like switch all the floats around and like run it the way I needed it to run. And then I had to balance the condensate receiver to the feed water tank because condensate receiver was overfilling the feed water tank. But I figured it out. <laughs> well, obviously you're mechanically inclined, which makes a uh, big difference in this industry. But you can see right. it's so expensive, you have to hire someone to keep coming and looking at it. Trip charges and hourly rates. Yeah, oh, it starts yeah. to make no sense. It's like a $200 bill just for them to show up and tell you that something just needed to be adjusted yeah, or to show up and tell you we need to order a part and come back and show up again and charge you again yeah, yeah same thing yep. yeah i mean that was that was where my value came into the company and i think the ultimate value that i brought i think was a little underappreciated because they didn't realize how expensive some of the stuff i did was because they never had to deal with it okay. like my wife she has no idea how expensive it is to call a plumber <laughs> and hopefully she'll never need to know yeah so. exactly we opened right after Thanksgiving, and my brew house got delivered the middle of December while we were doing opening things. So I spent the next month and a half with the welder, pipe fitter guy, cutting pipe, putting thread, you know, putting fittings on, and hanging pipe and whatever, just getting everything installed. And then I think I had my first batch of beer out of the brew house in February. So what were those first few months of sales like? I would have to assume with... $65,000 a month rent that uh, you guys have some high expectations. Was it just flooded? We were, it was, it was pretty busy, but our service model was, you know, you go to the bar and get a drink, open floor. Like you go whatever table you want. We don't care what table you're at. We don't care how many people are in your party. Find space for yourself. But you had the fine dining thing also. So did you have two different registers basically? Were they buying food from them, beer from you or? Yeah. Well, okay. and they, well that, that's the part of the confusion with the startup was, if you wanted food, you had to go eat over on the other side of the building that nobody wanted to be in. You couldn't bring your food over to the brewery side? He did not want us to allow that to happen. Okay. A crazy chef. Oh, this, this is the chef that said that. Yeah, he was like, no, no, no. The food has to stay over here. So the people started ordering food to go. They would allow you to order food to go. And they would take their to-go boxes over and sit in the brewery. Which you would think it would happen. I mean, yeah. A, a, a burger sale. Is a burger sale, but the brewery opened with just tacos, which is fine. But the whole point of tacos is for them to be fat. Mm -hmm. And he complicated the tacos by putting all this crap on them and hired like the slowest stoners in the world. 
to make the tacos. So, so then they were not fast and you had to sit there fast. complaining about not having food or drink because you couldn't drink while you were sitting there technically. Or could you yeah, bring your beer was, over there? You just couldn't bring the food back over? Yeah, kind of. Okay. It was kind of a dumpster fire, in my opinion. <laughs> Tried staying out of it because I was just really supposed to be the jack, the jackass making beer. Right. Yeah. Just, just let me make the beer and, and keep him me a picture. I'm just like standing up there on the brew deck, like watching this chaos. And people were like, you can't let them do that. I go, I'm just a fucking brewer. Like, leave me alone. I was working into like sweat equity ownership. On paper, I was just some asshole that made beer. So who handled Our, the uh, social media part and the marketing? Was that him or did you have to get called in for that? Well, too? I eventually got involved. Unfortunately, I ended up being everything beyond the man that called the bank. I had to meet with the bank more than once. I wasn't the one like dealing with the SBA or dealing with the lenders. By the end of the, like, I would say four months into the pandemic, I was social media, which is bad because I'm very sarcastic and inappropriate. So like anything that I put out, I would have to like filter it through two or three other people because what I find to be acceptable, most other people would be like, I you better not put that up. I was doing social media. I was basically the HR guy. We were like, oh, hey, you want to be the well, HR guy? I'll take I haven't known you very long, but I would honestly say that I think that that's the worst case scenario to have you as the HR guy. It's absolutely horrible yeah. uh, because I am the apathy you need. Right. But I come finding. Well, if it's an inappropriate joke, you want in on it. You don't want to tell them how to say it. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, that's not helpful at all for HR. Yeah. No. That's not a good. Not a good look for somebody who's supposed to be solving problems instead of making them worse. Yeah. But at the same time, like whininess. These. A lot of people like you have gems, uh, but a lot of them were like maladjusted. I call them alleged adults. Like they haven't figured out like that supposed to be responsible and like. Show up to work on time, do it sober. You're not working in an emergency room. Nobody's dying at your table. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. They're going to say bad things about us on Google and Gmail or uh, Google and Facebook. Like, big deal. TripAdvisor and Untapped and all those different things. So, were you guys open in November? You didn't know at the time, but you had basically about a year and a half until COVID was going to shut everything down. So, during that time, um, was the business growing? Were you guys consistently exceeding expectations or at least at least doing better than previous quarters, you know, year over year? We were getting, this is kind of funny, like I used to have these daily to weekly conversations about revenue and somebody, the other half of, you know, like my, one of my business partners would, and the chef was part owner in the beginning. He would print out numbers and go over meetings and it would just be like this week compared to last week. And he would say, we did better than last week or we did worse than last week. And I walk away from the meeting going, what the fuck good is a week-to-week comparison if you're not talking about like 16 weeks ago? Yeah, you can email that out. We don't need to have a meeting to look yeah. at last week's chart versus this week's chart. Oh, I was, I'm not good at meetings. I would just get up and walk away. I would be brewing or like cleaning kegs or something. I would be like, all right, I'll be back to hear you guys talk about nothing again in about five minutes. <laughs> So were they having like, you know, barrelage issues where you are hitting the numbers that you had targeted? I was basically kicking out 30 kegs a week. The brew pub was consuming between 20 and 30 kegs a week. So I was keeping up with four fermenters and, you know, that, that level of consumption, you know, 10 barrels a week was pretty good for variety because you could have a bunch of different things like hanging out four or five different, you know, remnants of the batch, like seven kegs, eight kegs left sitting in the cooler. So I think like at one point I had like 16 beers on, 
cooler's full. Had a 20-foot cooler, had a forklift. I think it was fairly intelligently planned out. I knew what I was doing. We were keep, I was keeping up with uh, consumption, no problem, on my own. If it got too much busier, I might have had to hire somebody part-time to help, like, clean kegs. Or I just had to switch completely to, I bought 40-barrel tanks with a 15-ish. Is a 15-yield brew house or weird-sized brew house? So it's a little bit higher, uh, a little bit bigger. Yeah, I could kick out 20 if I wanted to. So one of my early batches of a wheat beer, I actually yielded in the bright tank. 43 barrels of beer. That's crazy. For, for a double batch. I threw yeah. twice in the fermenter, but I yielded like 43, 86K out of the brew house for two knockouts. So I was kind of impressed by that. It was like in the beginning, I didn't know where my efficiency was going to be. So I kind of like high gravity brewed it in the kettle and then took a gravity and assumed, you know, based off of that, added a little bit of water and then hop it uh, as needed and in the tank it went. Okay. During this time, you probably made a bunch of different beers. What are some of the ones you're most proud of? I like my Pilsner. I'm, I'm kind of like a boring. I like making, like in my, I have basically Lambic style beers that I've made from when I was working at other breweries. I still had, I did a little bit of light home brewing when I was in college just because I was like, well, how hard is this? I did some and I had the equipment still. So I bought a bigger kettle for myself and made a couple batches of like wild fermentation beers because I like them and Cantillon and the like was, you know, it used to be like 20 bucks for 750 when I started liking them. And then the prices of that kind of stuff for a little while, like started getting pretty crazy, you know, 75 bucks a bottle. You couldn't even get them anymore. So I started making them for myself personally, but I really like drinking Pilsner. When I worked at Victory, I really got turned on to Prima Pilsner from working there. And that desire for Pilsner just kind of stuck with me. So I really liked the Pilsner. It was a really good beer. It was always one of our top sellers. We had a really decent it was just an ipa it wasn't a crazy i don't know what to categorize it i used to have these arguments with people that were like beer nerds i'm not like a beer nerd i'm, I'm a nerd but i'm not a beer nerd like i'm not gonna sit there and go oh this tastes like a west coast ipa or fight over it if somebody disagrees with you <laughs> yeah yeah like i had some customer at the bar say how many ibus are in your double ipa I, was, I don't know he goes what do you mean you don't know i said you, you want me to just give you a number 75 70 55 i said to him i was like the more important thing is do you think it tastes good? He goes, yes, it's delicious. I go, well, then I guess it's the right amount, isn't it? Yeah. And he didn't like that number. He wanted a stat. Well, people don't want to accept either the, the perception part of it either that, you know, based on when you hop, how you hop, what the malt bill is going to be, final alcohol percent, like all that changes the number anyways, but no one will accept that. There's if 175 right. and 173, 75 is hoppier. Like whatever, you know. Yeah, know. yeah. They, they don't know anything, really. That as much as they think they know, unless they've ran a brewery and understand the science behind IBU, like they really don't know anything. I, for a brief moment in time, ran IBU testing in the lab at Victory because of my biotech background. The normal micro girl was on maternity leave, and so they found a couple of us that have lab experience in the brewery and loaned us for the the lab or however much time each to uh, fill the gap and so I was like what a boring job though like just looking at they were still doing just like growth plate well maybe some like, people like is... that shit <laughs> i know people who well, like excel it. spreadsheets well, but i don't like those either yeah i don't like them either you pay somebody to just like pull these out and then they'd streak them onto a plate on you know microscope plate and look at them and just say what they are, but I don't know that they did anything about it. Didn't really compare it or learn from it or anything like that. It was just like a, it was like we had a log that, and like you didn't know whether it was contamination or whether it was contamination of the beer or it was contamination of the port 
or whether it was contamination of the cabinet or whether it was contamination of their media prep. Yeah, could have been anything at that point. They started using a, a system called Invisible Sentinel while I was there. It was like a rapid PCR system. Basically, it was like a lactobacillus pediococcus pregnancy test. It takes four hours to prep it or something like that because of using a thermocycle for PCR. But from a perspective of a place like Victory that's pushing out 200,000 barrels of beer a year through distribution through the country, a recall can be very expensive. So I forget what the test cost each, but it was totally worth checking the the bright tank. Basically, it, it honed in on specific needs. So they were getting more advanced in the lab when I was leaving. But, you know, I, I know the guys at Trogues and Hershey, they started in Harrisburg and their lab is essential. It was funny to me to like to be at Victory and like see their lab. Was, like, And I, it's not super necessary to be that substantial. I think the guys at those drugs just really love gear. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're into the science piece of it. I never oh, was. Sure. Not one of the million reasons why I was in a great brewer that I just, I don't, none of that. Making the same beer day in, day out does not excite me. Making it taste the same does not give me any sense of satisfaction in life. Like it, it's almost the opposite. So the guy making a half of Eisen shouldn't be me. Artistic barrel aged shit that changes year to year and you blend it for complexity and yeah. depth. Sure, I can do that. But don't don't yeah. ask me to pull a yeast count. I could do that. I just, I don't know. It's, it's almost like anything. It's like a job. Like I'm good at it. I enjoy the product, right? I didn't have a problem. I mean, to me, it wasn't matter if i'm making the same beer or if i'm making a different beer the actions in the brew house are the same for the most part yeah the hot side especially yeah it's just it's manufacturing i don't like making oatmeal but that's the current thing oatmeal specifically like in the microwave or whatever no like like in the brew house i hate <laughs> i hate brewing these like 10 20 25 oat mashes but People want that goopy protein mouthfeel for their hazy IPAs. Yeah, you got to make them happy because they're the ones that are voting with their paycheck, unfortunately. Yeah. Even if they're stupid. Eight hours after you burp. Yeah. All right. So we know, obviously, why COVID was a struggle. But you had mentioned to me that even if COVID hadn't happened, there was a good chance that you guys were going to be facing closing. At the point when COVID occurred... What were some of the kind of cracks in the wall? Like, what, what were you seeing as some business operations well, that needed to change? It wasn't until COVID occurred that I knew more of the written business plan mm. because those that were involved on the more business side of service and operation were gone by that point. So I kind of ended up stepping into that role just because I have an affinity for numbers due to my, I guess, my science background. And I like digesting data to some extent because it gives you a non-emotional answer to whatever question you have. You know, when I have weekly conversations about, we would talk about revenue this week versus last week. I took all of the revenue numbers and sales numbers and put them into a spreadsheet with a trend line for fuck's sake. So we could actually see the restaurant operation weekly and monthly on a trend, a separate graph. And then we had the brewery on the same graph as a different color trend line. And I could see that the restaurant was going down and the brewery was slowly but surely going up. And the overall revenue for the business was going up, despite the fact that we had a boat anchor on the other side of the building holding us down. And the metaphor that I always make with this business was that food operation, at least for me, the last four years, has always been a dirt hole that I've been trying to fill with beer. Just when you think it's full, turn around for five minutes and it's empty again. So in your experience, the restaurant piece of it wasn't profitable. Do you no. think that that is because of the fine dining versus beer trying to blend two things that don't make sense? Or was it because of the crackhead asshole that ran it? Or is it just some, um, that's the normal way that this would happen. It should be that way in a business. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, 
I am not a restaurant tour. I am a brewer and all of that stuff kind of like fell apart before I ever got my hands around any of it. I feel like the ramifications of it we never recovered from. And part of it, like you said, the crackhead chef, what ended up happening is he quit in the middle of the day in November before he even hit his one year operation to get a health inspection. He quit via text to the other owner that I'm done. But he had equity, didn't he? Or was it sweat equity too? I thought you said he was a he, partial owner. Well, so he his he had a weird he had a weird setup. He like put a little bit of money in, not much, twenty five thousand dollars or something like that. In the grand scheme of things, he got paid more, far more than the year that we were open to taking like unsecured like basically his pay was structured as an unsecured loan. Oh really? The theory of his ownership agreement was he was gonna work for free to pay off whatever his investment would have been and just live off of profit but there was never any profit because he was spending five hundred dollars a week on a uniform service company to give them all these ridiculous uniform coats rugs paper towels whatever the dude was throwing away i don't know how much a week seafood that didn't get eaten at just it was just insanity so in the end he never made a cent yeah he was taking a draw against it so he's technically was in debt at that point right yeah he uh he was taking a a draw against the company and was debt to the company quit okay kind of really it's a really weird setup so yeah the place was but back to like we were talking about like weekly revenue stuff the chef and one of his friends they both worked at Krogs. they based their knowledge of starting a group hub up off of Krogs tasting who is at the time i think they were a six state distributed regional brewery yeah well-known brand so, and it, it worked for right. them and the, right. the odds so of recreating like, well, matters nil we'll do something like We'll do 30 over here and we'll do like 20 over here. Well, $50,000 a week revenue. That was what they thought. Mm, because they used that the example that. of another brewery that was large and already successful. They didn't use that brewery's first year numbers. They used their existing numbers however many years in. They used, they used like their 20 year numbers. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> that makes complete sense. Yeah. That was what I'm saying. Like we, I feel like we were going to close in the end unless we were able to open the additional locations because the revenue for that site, we would have never made that. To hit... 30, I think, would have been a massive struggle. 30 a week to do $120,000 a month, which is where we needed to be. 30 needed to be an average, mm-hmm. not not a goal. And then still had to maintain or manage costs pretty aggressively at that point. The busier you get, the more people chefs like throwing in the kitchen. They're like, hey, I got like 15 guys working now. I got a fucking army in here making oysters for six people. And those are the only people in a restaurant that actually cost money. I mean, at least the servers are cheap. That was that's kind of the what ended up happening. As much as I tried wrapping, getting things in the, the kitchen situated, I worked with kitchen on scheduling. Like, mm-hmm. You guys have to stagger yourself. We can't have seven people from open to close. You have two people come in and prep. You have a couple people work through dinner. Then you have the people that prep go the fuck home and other people close the place down to minimize your manpower through the night. I can't be there all the time. So it was just sort of sucking it dry. Well, let's. Yeah, my partner was distant, spent his time predominantly in Florida with all his money on the line. Maybe as a percentage of net worth, it wasn't that much. Is that part of why, maybe? We closed because we declared bankruptcy. That can't be great. Well, so let's get into that, the whole closing and kind of how that looked and all that um, after the break. But let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, 
Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. This is going to be the hard part. I, I apologize. We're going to drag all these painful memories out of you. But um, what was that like? So COVID happens. Obviously, revenue takes a shit. You have to step up and take more responsibility. And this is one of those times that, for me and for a lot of people I've talked to, it became a real challenge to try to keep the consistency, the passion, and just the quality of the beer at forefront in your mind when you start seeing all the shit falling apart. You look at the business model and you're like, I don't know how we're going to do that. That stress coupled with that creativity and discipline is just a challenge. So how did you deal with that? The thing that's interesting about the situation was the lifeline federal government threw out. Mm-hmm. You get the EIDL loan and all uh, that? Yeah, so like EIDL, PPP loan, all that stuff because we had opened far enough in advance we had been open for 2019 mm-hmm. all of that life-saving assistance was based off of 2019 revenue yeah you get 70, 75 percent of revenue our revenue was pretty good in yeah. 2019 because of the crazy restaurant and all it was based off of your payroll which our payroll was ridiculous in 2019 because of all of the chefs and the, we had two like mixologists bartenders over on the fine dining side that were getting paid, you know, nine, 10 bucks an hour plus tips. Somehow he snuck in servers that were getting promised nine, 10 bucks an hour in addition to the tip as an hourly wage. And then everybody else was whatever, but we got a shit ton of money for PPP. I forget the numbers it was like 250. And I, think, I can't remember if PPP two was the same as one. I don't remember the numbers exactly. And then we got 500 through EIDL, but it was in two parts. Mm-hmm. So EIDL was the first was like up to 150, I think is what you got. And then they said, oh, you guys could get up to this much without collateralization or something like that. I forget what it was. I remember the experience. You The second time they sent you this thing and then you logged in and it had a slider. And so you could like, yeah. they had your max of what you could get and you just slid it with your mouse to the right. And I did, I, I, I did not do that. That was, like I said, one of, one of those many things of all the things I did when we were open dealing with loans like the one thing I did. I remember I was looking at it and I had taken like whatever the least amount that I kind of could in the beginning. Like I, Cause I was like, I want to stay competitive. So if my, all my right. competitors get, you know, 200 grand, they put it in their account and I don't have any money. I'm fucked. So I think I did 70 grand. And then the second time it came over and I could slide it and I kept sliding. I'm like 160. I can't do that. I, did, I didn't do the second one, but I probably should have. Yeah. Cause I ended up paying it anyway. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. We did the full amount. We got the second injection basically a year after the first roughly because despite my bringing it to their attention when they were applying for the second the second had a prior owner's name on it oh really and i was like guys you can't put this in as the same loan with his name on it and they said oh well, well, well. so it took basically nine months or more to fix it because you were dealing directly with the sba instead of a local bank like you did for the ppp one or two so it took a long time to get that second half Topped up. The first half was easy. They were like on the phone, like, "What's your name? Mm-hmm. Verify your, your birth." They're like hunting you down to give you money. And then it's just the in your account part. one morning when you come in. Yeah, it's just like in your account. Yeah. The second half of the EIDL came, and you know we used it to pay off some like back rent, and we fixed the 
couple things. And they were always trying to come up with some new scheme to like attract new customers in the building. So they spent money on, I fucking forget what. It was a giant waste of time and effort and money. What ended up happening was because we could not get a good handle on the kitchen and we couldn't get anybody to manage the food side of things that gave a fuck about controlling costs, I convinced my partner. I said, I, this is what I want to do. Are you on board? And he agreed. So I did the footwork and started searching in the local area to find somebody who wanted to run a restaurant. And I was going to let them do it out of our building for 10% or 50% of their food rent. Mm-hmm. rent. So if I got $5 from them, that would have been $5 more than I ever got of anybody selling food in that building at that point in time. Well, shit, at that point, the restaurant was the brick. It was drowning you. So even if they got yeah. broke even. So yeah, break even was a, a fantasy. So we got a guy in to take over the restaurant side of things. And I was still making beer. And beer production at that time was difficult because of the size of my brew house and not having two other facilities to sell it at. A 30 keg batch of beer lasts a long time, 15 barrels, when you're going through five kegs a week. Mm-hmm. Were, you know, were you able to make smaller batches or did you still just keep the 15 barrel size and kind of run that way no because my tanks had the temp probe at 15. oh that's right yeah you told me okay i could have made 10 on the brew house no problem problem was temp controlling that so these badass temps temp tanks from uh whatever that company was <laughs> well they put them where i wanted them because i didn't think i was going to be making 10 barrel batches of beer. well you shouldn't have to like, but <laughs> i shouldn't have had to but we beer lasted forever and it was tough to get variety. And then like, it was a cycle, like, like attendance turned into a yo-yo for us starting in 20, obviously it's ghost town. Pennsylvania was a little weird. We weren't allowed to have patrons in the facility until July. And it was at half capacity and they had to wear masks all the time. And all the servers had to wear fucking masks. I'm sitting here with, with my previous profession in the air force and explosive warrants disposal, if it had explosives, it was our problem. So that includes biological weapons, mm-hmm. chemical weapons, nuclear weapons. And I'm sitting here looking at COVID and how ridiculous this is saying, nobody ever handed me a piece of cloth to cover my face to go into a simulated chemical warfare environment that's going to be fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry about it. But here we have, you know, as it's being said on the news, oh my God, it's a hundred year pandemic. All these people are going to die. And they're like, cut a t-shirt up and put loops over your ears and you'll be fine. The absurdity of the whole thing from a service perspective blew my mind. And so you had like nobody showing up. It wasn't until October that year that we actually had to use the other side of the building that was the old restaurant for overflow seating at half past. Oh, really? And like in Pennsylvania, you couldn't have somebody sitting at the bar. Right, because they're too but close. But if, if I put tables at the bar... Totally fine. They had to be at tables. They couldn't be sitting at the bar across from the bartender. But if they were sitting at the bar at a table, totally different. Texas had decided that they had rules like that for restaurants and then bars mm-hmm. just couldn't have anybody. So as long as you had food, then you could sit next to other people. But if you didn't have food, then we would all die. Well, Pennsylvania was the same way. Like you had to have your mask on until you were seated. But the minute you were seated, you didn't have to put it on again until you left. Yeah, then you could breathe all over each other as long as you knew the person yeah. you were killing. It's okay. The logic of the entire situation is third. So I know what a lot of people really- experience is that the, the customer sort of never came back in a way. Like it, even to this day, that sort of ruined the experience of going out, quote unquote, for some people. Did, did you guys see that? That just couldn't get the crowds back? Oh, well, so we, we talked about the neighborhood, how like I'm in the middle of a residential development. The neighborhood is not young. So that's why... I kind of emphasized, in theory, the idea was you have all these people that can walk to your brewery and have a good time and not have to worry about driving home. If I could put Lipitor and beer and blue pills, then 
maybe I would have been able to attract a higher percentage of the 75-year-old males that live in the neighborhood we were located. However, because you can't put erection medication in IPAs at this point. Yet, right, yeah. That was not <laughs> something I could do. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that, uh, I don't know his name, so I keep calling him the rich assholes. We'll just keep calling him that. But they, he had some ideas on like, how to save it, like what you guys are going to do with some of that government money. What are some things you guys tried that didn't work? We tried a fucking comedy night. Oh, I saw that on your Which, website, actually. Your website's still up, by the way, if you didn't know that. Not my problem. Not my problem anymore. Yeah, right. So <laughs> can you speak to maybe why the comedy night didn't work? Was that something specific that just didn't make sense? Or it, did the old people well, in your neighborhood so, not think shit's funny? I think was a combo of that but at the same time one of the things we found like this is a legitimate you know metaphor in some cases that my partner came up with you know he calls it the balloon animal you can do all this advertising to bring people in and all you did was squeeze the air out of this end of the balloon animal and it makes this end get bigger but it's still the same amount of fucking air Mm -hmm. he used it he used that entirely too often but in some (laughs) Occasion, it was accurate. <laughs> Sometimes he was the one squeezing the balloon animal, and he insisted that he was not squeezing the balloon animal. They would advertise, you know, they would sell it. So that the deal with the the comedy night, we would attract. I get um, apparently they're like well known comics. I never heard any of these people. So like these were like Netflix special, yeah, you know, comedians or like not even guys that just like somehow got their skit loaded on Amazon Prime for free just to get exposure. I've never heard any of these guys. But anyway, so they're supposed to be well-known from, like, the Philly area and stuff, which we would sell tickets through whatever the fucking website is, Eventbrite or something like that. Once everything was sold, we would set up the room for the amount of tickets sold plus extra if people wanted to walk in. The funny thing about it was they would do it on a Thursday to try and draw business on Thursday. The other side of the building was empty because everybody that came in on Thursday just went to fucking comedy night. Yeah, right. So then just killed the regular business, essentially, or just and squeezed the balloon, so right? That, yeah, we squeezed the balloon animal in that case. Yeah, so he got so, it right. He was right on that one, but he was partially behind the effort for that balloon animal. Balloon animal squeeze. Yeah, that was one of the things we used to do. But we had a, a manager at one point for a little while that he thought that we needed to turn it into more of a dance club on Thursday night. And so this guy brought in these ridiculously loud speakers. He, we had a big, like, nice sound system in the building because the thought was we would have, like, he wanted a live musician, like a house musician. Hmm. He wanted to take something out of some, like, really touristy southern city or whatever location and, like, take the feel and the attitude of that and, like, put it in central Pennsylvania. And while it sounds cool... <laughs> If you've never been to central Pennsylvania, there's a lot of fuddy-dud assholes around here. That's not what the customer wants. That's just what he wanted. That's what he wanted, yeah. The the customers are not hanging out in drum circles, having, you know, like, hippie love fest and drinking like they're on vacation because nobody vacations in central Pennsylvania. The closest you're going to come is, like, Gettysburg for people to go see Battlefield. And I guess they probably drink, but I I feel like those people drink light beer, so I don't know if that's going to help you. Which actually brings me to another question. In your fight to save the brewery, how many times did you put Fruit Loops in an IPA? So obviously this is one of the things that a lot of breweries are going to try to do. They get attention by making something fucking stupid and hypey. Did you do that with your beer? I made, I mean, I made, like, kettle sours and i dumped guava and like lemon stuff into like that was about as 
hypey as I got. And then it fucks your beer lines up. And so like for like four kegs of the next batch of beer, it tastes like guava lemonade stout. It goes through cleaning too. It stays in the line. Now we actually made some of those kinds of beers. And so we were the problem for some bars that put them on sometimes and couldn't get the clean. So you can't clean it out. So what I did was to kind of cater to that crowd that wanted that gimmicky shit was I bought like Monin concentrate pump bottles mm-hmm. of like every flavor Monin made. Just I put, put it in behind glass. the bar. On the menu, it would say like, make your own flavor combo. It was like Froyo for beer. I want a mango, pineapple, coconut, jalapeno, kettle sour. Here you go. Four pumps. There you go. So that actually worked out pretty well. I would buy some other people's like stupid hype beer stuff. For guest beer. We really never, yeah, we would do like guest beers. And I never really went down that road because part of it was I got through the first year of operation of just kind of like keeping afloat with production and like getting my feet underneath me with beer to having no customers. What's the point of doing a hype beer if nobody's going to show up to drink? Yeah. Well, did you guys talk about another popular answer is, oh, we should go to distribution. So let's buy a canning line or get a mobile canner in here and we're going to distribute the stuff out. We got a mobile canner in. We were kind of talking to a distributor right before COVID hit. It just didn't make sense to go like deep into it because I recognize that if you go to the beer store, you are one of 200 other assholes that think the same thing. And mm-hmm. so what's going to end up happening is your beer is going to get on the shelf if you get a retail outlet to buy it from the distributor, and then it's going to sit on the shelf and die and yeah. stale. And then you're going to come around. Kelly's going to come into the grocery store and pick up a four-pack of newfangled Pilsner that's seven months old, and you're going to take a home, and you're going to be like, this fucking brewery makes disgusting, stale-ass Pilsner. I wouldn't be able to keep it to myself. I'd have to go on untapped or on the internet and let right. the world know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then the world gets to know that you have disgusting beer, and it's because the distributor sold beer that probably should have been given back to the brewery for a discounted refund, distributed or sold directly in their own building before it was too old, which is places I've been at work before. Like, if the beer was sitting at the distributor for X amount of months, the deal was they bring it back, take fresh beer, and then we'll serve it through our own tap lines before it ages out and stale. I instituted a policy while I was there. You know, everybody tries to do first in, first out, but when it came to distribution, I sent them the most recent batch of whatever was put in the cooler, and I had a guy that worked in the, the warehouse distribution side of the dock fight with me about it. And I said, just fucking do it. Because if you give them beer that's been sitting in the cooler for two months, it has two months less time to sit at the distributor. If you give them the freshest beer, we can sell all the shit that's in the cooler that's two months old before the distributor is ever going to touch it. Yeah. And the consumer's still drinking the same age of beer at that point. Right. So like it was like a mind-blowing revelation for these guys to like think of it that way. But send the distributor the freshest beer so that it has the most time in the distribution network to make its way to the consumer. And then the beer that you make and serve yourself in your building, you have some of the older stuff. But at that point, the life cycle of getting it to the customer is probably the same year. We didn't go down that path at Newfangled because at the same time that we were having problems getting customers in the building, every other bar in Pennsylvania was also having problems getting customers. They weren't going to buy your kegs anyways at that point. There's nobody to fucking buy it. One of those big questions that I always like to ask, but this time I'm going to have somebody else ask it for me. So do you know Jason Sleeman who handles the beer lending for a lot of guys in the industry? I know the name, I think, from like a MBAA or... Yeah, he gets around. So he posted on my Facebook to ask you when you knew it was time. And like when you're looking back and there's something that you could have done to reverse course, like how did you know, fuck, we're done? 
What was the thing? Well, so I kind of said we found somebody to take over the kitchen, right? The barbecue place, right? Yeah, it was a barbecue place. So they, they came and they took over the kitchen. I want to say it was April. He had high hope we're going to be doing this much by this month. And I looked at him and I go, excuse me? Dude, you're talking about like a 50% increase in revenue over three months. Like that's not going to fucking happen. And he was very optimistic. Which I guess you he have to be dollars. somewhat to be in business, but you've right. got to also be realistic. He was very optimistic to the point of being unrealistic. I said, dude, you'll be lucky to get 5% a month for the next six months. One of the other problems, like from a beer sales perspective for me was the, the portion sizes that this guy was putting out were so big and the sandwiches were whatever. 13 bucks, something like that. What are you going to consume? Your $13 sandwich or your half drank $6 beer? I'm now selling less beer because he's filling these people up with the pork. Yeah, there's been a few barbecue places that actually have kind of a beer contingent and they always do shitty numbers on anything other than mass marketed stuff because you can fit a Miller Lite or two in there, but you try to drink a 7.5% IPA with a little bit of body to it, you're not going to make it. You're going to go to no, the hospital. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get rolled out of there or like yeah. put on a wheelchair or something. So there's a little bit of a gut bomb issue with the food mixing with the beer. And I saw it in the beer sales. Like they didn't go up with the food. They stayed stagnant if that went down a little bit. <laughs> Food sales maybe improved a little bit because the food quality was higher. With that said, it was there was no life in the business with the change in the kitchen. So April, May, June, we had gotten the additional EADL money, like however many months ahead of time. And revenue just wasn't getting better. We were throwing money at advertising through social media, whether it was, you know, Facebook or like I don't really know how to advertise on Instagram, but I think we might have done that at one point. You can do it with Facebook uh, just by clicking one other button and it'll just share it over there too. Yeah, I did th- I, I did that. I knew how to do that. They're like, well, how do you post the same thing on Facebook? And Instagram? I was like, there's a fucking button on your phone. <laughs> it's not hard. I don't really use social media, but except I have an account for Facebook just because I ended up being the manager of the Facebook page. Like, yeah. I got that unlocked out and I was like the administrative control. I would give somebody access that we wanted to do posts and help us market and then when they would eventually crash and burn because they're not like real people, I would revoke access from them. So like power was centralized count wise for like all digital stuff under me. We kind of knew it was time to end because we had no increase in sales. Nothing nothing was working. Yeah. The thought process was maybe it'll get better through the fall and we can continue on. My partner just decided that there was no life left in it and he was going to declare bankruptcy. Okay. sometime we were talking about it but he was ready to do it in october of 2020 yeah right after right like right after he was just like it's done he was trying to get me to buy his equity out and i looked at him and i said cam i said i don't have any money and i'm not going to put the footwork into collecting the money to give you money for all of the bad decisions that were made up to this point. Yeah, I mean, the the amount you'd have to spend to buy a business that's losing money, it doesn't, there's no way to make that make sense on paper. Right, so like I knew that it was a bad, like I was gonna be there to help out as much as I could, but like I was not going to put my neck on the chopping block 100% of the way with the ax hanging over top of it and buy him out. I just wasn't in the cart. That's a pretty uh, shrewd, ballsy move for him because he knew that was a bad play, but he was just trying to like lay it off on somebody else at that point. Well, he would, he had a girlfriend, his son living in another state, and I think his life changed. He owned property in Pennsylvania. His, he had some family here. For whatever reason, he wanted nothing to do with Pennsylvania anymore. But at the same time, that was also kind of a saving grace. He had all property in Pennsylvania and completely retreated to Florida. And because of that, he had bankruptcy protection on his home 
and retirement. So in Florida, if you declare bankruptcy, they can't take your car, they can't take they can't take one vehicle, they can't take your house, and they can't take retirement. At least he had that planned out. Yeah, that I mean that was definitely strategic on his part. He knew what was going on and was making moves to insulate himself to some extent early on. And I think he had truthfully made the decision to declare bankruptcy in October of 2020 because I think he kind of realized that after the chef left and the revenue numbers a couple times were as good as they hoped they would be, like quite, which was that needed to be like the running average. I think he realized that they made a lot of mistakes in the beginning, overspent on a lot of things. Basically, they built two different businesses and marketed two businesses, spent a ton of money doing. Yeah, but Um, they also had a, like, they created an overhead that just was unattainable on a consistent basis unless you just caught fire. And and that happens in some people's defense. Like, there are other businesses that have done it, but trying to recreate the once-in-a-lifetime business, that's tough. You can't build a business off of a plan to get lucky. But I use the example all the time, and I'm sure you've heard of Jester King here. Like, how many people I have heard say... I'm going to build this thing in the middle of nowhere and it's going to be weird esoteric beers because if I can just quote, get a little bit of that Jester King money, you can't recreate that. That already exists. You have to recreate something else that also has this important, cool niche somewhere else. And you can't copy somebody else's thing and get a piece of it. It doesn't work, unfortunately. I love metal, like Jester King, black metal style, all that stuff. I love metal. I could play metal all day long to be like this kind of weird place that just played metal like i think free floyd said that when i play metal at my place if i wasn't paying attention and customers start coming because i would listen to it while i was brewing it looked like i was spraying a dog with a cold water hose they don't enjoy it they don't find it quirky and kind of cool <laughs> they're like what the fuck this, is this, this guy worships the devil <laughs> <laughs> right like it's right. just i'm kind of like incompatible i think with the industry now because everybody just wants to get like a beer that is going to give them diabetes. You see that more and more that this, what, what the consumer is asking for today is not what most of people that I know got in the industry to create. It's the Bartle and James of 1996 as craft <laughs> right. brewers. I always save this discussion for the fourth segment. So let us take a quick break and we come back. I want to just purely shit on all of these hypey beers. I'm down. <laughs> Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front, too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back. So before I give the opportunity to tell everybody who likes diabetes stouts and milkshake garbage fucking IPAs, you ever made one? Not at Newfangled, but I am now. Are you? That's why I kind of said I hate brewing oatmeal. I'm currently brewing oatmeal on a regular basis. You started, you said 12, right? So I started in the industry like kind of 11. You also saw the evolution. Like those things existed. Clearly McKellar made, I have no idea what the fuck it was called. Their breakfast stout in like 08. Those things existed, but by and large, we were still drinking primarily imports. Belgians were big. Um, you know, IPA was still going to be West Coast at that point. I mean, the industry has the changed. Cas- you remember the Cascadian dark ale effort for the <sighs> short minute? It had relevance for a short minute, but it wouldn't fucking die. I literally right. saw on Instagram a week ago, 
to somebody it might just still be a thing in the pacific northwest but it Maybe. died in the rest of i don't know i'd tasted a few of them i only ever had one that i thought wasn't bad and it was like eight percent alcohol so i'm not sure i was even in my right mind to make that assessment but i remember not hating it, it just, to me like the, they always lock ipas and all that they just tasted like somebody fucked their hop recipe up on their stout yeah it was like but it was like a dirty like so for me when i drink a lot of like porters especially in texas the smaller ones i've had have more of like a dirt flavor so it's like minerality and earthiness from having the light grains because it doesn't have the body to back it up and i get that on cascading dark ales all the time where it's hoppy and dirty it's like, why the fuck would I drink this? I think a lot of the places didn't understand like match pH stuff. You make comments like, oh, this place opened with plastic fermenters. And it, mm-hmm. I think people just don't understand like dark grains need you know, alkaline buffering to get them out of like this weird pH range that kind of tastes gross. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think that the whatever you're going to call the 2010s will kind of be looked back upon as the period of not much education in craft beer. I would hope that at least going forward that some of the guys that are, and girls, who are making beers not the way that that we know how to make them and that we're educated to make them will finally leave the industry and leave the rest of the people that are skilled and experienced behind. But that's a pipe dream, I'm sure. I feel like that's kind of part of the, like, the hype beers right now are not all, but I think it's a segment of untrained brewers that can't make anything else. And some of the hype and the trend has come from like a confirmation bias where if all I make is IPAs, that's all that sells. So all I make is IPA. Why would I make a nice clean Pilsner when the only thing that sells in my place is IPA? Well, I think part of the problem too, and I know I experienced this when I was trying to find relevance with my brewery and, and fighting that retail game because we did distribute other states, is that if you walk in and you can honestly tell the beer buyer at your local grocery store that your Pilsner is the single best Pilsner made in the United States, it doesn't resonate. So they're like, well, sure, but we've got 45 that are already on the shelf over here. So why do I have room for yours? Does it sell? Of course it doesn't sell yet because I don't have shelf space and I don't have, you know what I mean? It's so people were like, but if they walk in with a fucking Fruit Loop Stout, they're like, well, I don't have one of those, so I can definitely find yeah. space for that on the shelf. I'm going to make a IPA with ground-up unicorn horns and leprechaun farts, and they'll be like, oh my god, did you pour it in my mouth through the hollowed-out dick of some kind of weird underbridge troll? Because I would love it. So as you watched the industry change, did you, how'd you handle it? I guess, what was your perspective as people were starting to line up out the doors for things that you as an entrepreneur and a creative brewer had no desire to make? Oh, I made some of the stuff halfway, three-quarters of the way. You know, people People want like these fruit heavy beers. So I made a Blondale. I would put out regular Blondale and then I would take a portion of the batch, sometimes half of a double knockout and put blood orange puree in it. And that was, they were happy with it. Yeah, I wasn't it's... getting like the, the travelers that wanted beer that had pulp floating in the foam. I also didn't necessarily want those customers because they're not reliable customers. They're the hype beer chasers. They're the one time every three months depending on how frequently you put out something that gets their panties wet or something. They're not coming out for your Pilsner that could sell three or four kegs a week of at a decent profit margin. Basically, your batch cost is that of an IPA or double IPA for a beer that's 5% because you're just dumping fruit juice in a rice tank. I interviewed uh, Richard over at Rocket Frog the other day, and he told me kind of the same thing. when He went back and redid his recipe pricing and like, per batch and what the he was like this makes no fucking sense like you can't make money on a brown ale in the united states in 2022 and so there comes a point where i mean at the end of the day part of why i have this podcast there's so many breweries that are operating at a loss and continue to operate at a loss because it's either fun or they're stuck in it or whatever 
but those kinds of beers have no hope of ever being profitable. Like that, that model doesn't lead to long-term profitability over a 25-year horizon. It's not a legacy brand. Like you'd almost have to partner with something like Tropical Smoothie mm-hmm. in order to get access to their fruit to dump beer into. You have to have like major volume. I think one of the things that's going to be the future of this business and this industry, it's going to have to be localized co-op and consolidation of some effort because you just can't do it. It is not profitable to buy the equipment, staff the fucking place, and have an accountant and somebody helping you with social media and somebody with helping with HR stuff. Because you don't want somebody like me doing HR. Which is what unless you most want, breweries are doing. Right. Unless you want somebody that's heartless with, with no empathy whatsoever dealing with your employees. I always joke, like, I'll come in and fire people for you and sleep fine that night. Like, it doesn't upset fire somebody. Because usually, you know the movie Gross Point Blank? I just watched it, like, last week, actually. She says, chances are, if I show up at your door, you did something to get me there or whatever. <laughs> and, like, chances are, if I'm firing you, it's because you did something it's not just because I'm in a fan. You knew when I called you into the office, you were probably getting fired. Right. So I never really got too like distraught about firing people because for me to have to talk to them about it, I've already talked to them about something else two or three times. But, you know, like HR services, marketing, accounting, grain purchasing, there's already kind of businesses that are catering to this, but it's not localized, it's more regional, like it's trying to be its own business where they're taking a cut. I think part of it would almost have to be like if they could share brewers even and mm-hmm. share production. I think that kind of might be the, the future. I mean, what Craft Brewer Lines, I think that's one of them kind of like out west. They have, a, I think, a East Coast brewery called Appalachian Mountain Brewing in North Carolina. Kind of like that whole canarchy model where everyone right. sort of specializes in different things. The brands don't overlap, yeah. but they can pull economies of scale. They can brew on each other's facilities yeah. if need be. I actually just talked I to a that, lady in Portland that they've got like five or six brewers that are looking to do that right now. So all of them are struggling. And if they could just have one facility and all brew out of it. So she'd asked my opinion. I'm like, I, I know for a fact what you're doing now isn't a good plan. So you may as well try that right. one. I could see how that would work. But yeah. yeah, I mean, the other option is what? Sell your business? I mean, no one's buying them anymore. I mean, I, I sold mine, but I sold it for 700 grand less than I should have, or you know, than, than I paid for it. Doesn't you're, count. Right now, you're not going to make out on top. I have a friend that I went to high school with, bought a bar and restaurant, and I think he's okay with the sale. I actually, I saw him a few weeks ago, and he told me that it sold, and I said, who the fuck's buying a restaurant right now? He goes, shh, somebody yeah. here might know them. <laughs> Yeah, well, you always, I mean, if you can find somebody, there's people opening breweries every goddamn day, too. So whatever. I mean, at some point, yeah, it makes money. no sense. I mean, the, the place I'm helping out at, helping out with now, their previous brewer, who wasn't that good at brewing, he, like, opened his own brewery in his garage of his home. Legally, like, to, to distribute? Like, legally, like, he got PTB license. Technically illegal in Pennsylvania to work for two separate licenses. Not just manufacturing, but, like, you can't work for a distributor as a sales guy and work at a brewery. Yeah, you can't in Texas either. Three-tier bullshit. He got let go mostly because of that, but like he doesn't have the ability to heat his fermenters right now. <laughs> and it's, you know, 40 degrees during the day, which is warm for Pennsylvania in January. He stopped by yesterday uh, while I was brewing and talking to the owner where I'm at and said that he can't ferment right now because tanks are too cold. Yeah, well, you would have thought you'd know that going into it if you'd worked in a brewery, but perhaps not. Uh, there's a lot of people that think they know what they're doing that actually don't. I don't know how like recognized of a term this is, but I've always loved it. You know, we all we all fall victim to it, I think, at some point in our professional careers and whatever it is. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where you know so little about what you're doing, you don't know how little you know, so you have a false sense of confidence. But it's so confident that other people start to doubt whether or not they know what they're talking about, because you're like, 
Right. It's weird. Well, there's a lot of people like in the, in the brewery industry that I find they, they throw lingo out and they don't use easily understood terminology by most laymen. And I think people that don't use easily understood terminology are usually, I've called them now like brewery grifters. They can make beer. They're not going to do you any favors. Like these people, these owners have spent $100,000, $200,000, $400,000, a million opening their company and getting equipment up and running. And they're going to hire some guy who made beer in his backyard. They have to run this multi-million dollar manufacturing facility. Right. I think the industry as a whole may have suffered from it's so easy a caveman can do it mentality. Now we're at this point where you have a lot of people that don't actually know how to make beer and maintain quality products. They don't know how to blend stuff like in your case. They wouldn't be able to make that kind of beer. So they've resorted to making soft drinks that are loosely malt-based and they put through a brew house. I mean, the easiest way to make something like that, though, at this point, you might as well just get some bags of dry malt extract, a bunch of dextrose, yeast nutrient, throw it in the kettle with hot water, throw it through your whirlpool and knock out. You do two batches in the time it's going to take you to mash one beer. And the consumer will not be able to taste the difference. Because you're going to throw 80 pounds of fruit in it on the back end. You could be the worst brewer ever. You could probably have little to no temperature control and make something that's acceptable from an alcohol percentage concentration to be diluted down to five or six percent by dumping 15 boxes of strawberry puree in it with cream cheese extract flavoring oh there was even in the mixed culture world there there are some guys that i don't release how many pounds of fruit they put in their um fruited barrel aged beer this year and I've done the math and like I've seen 27% raspberry wine basically being blended with barrel aged beer. All you're tasting is raspberry wine. So I always made it a point on mine to make it a blend where it was bold and big fruit flavor. But if I if I lost the beer back, then I failed something. It still had to taste like a beer with fruit in it, not fruit yeah, wine with beer. That's where you failed, I think, because yeah. they wanted to taste nothing like beer. Yeah, no, they, that's why it wasn't as exciting and no one lined up out the door and still great you, beer. You should, but. you should just be like a, a retail seller of like little bottles of vodka next to Tropical Smoothie or some other fruit puree, icy business. You just sell little bottles of vodka and they go over there and get their smoothie rather than making one and making your wines taste like raspberry kumquat. And the customer doesn't necessarily carry the way and it'd probably be cheaper to do it the way you're talking about. Well, that's what the, the conversation I'm having right now, you know, to make those kinds of beers. I said, this is legal by TTB standards and Pennsylvania follows TTB, you know, to the T for alcohol regulation. I said, dude, can we just stop like mashing these beers, buy bags of fermentable whatever, dump it in the kettle, mix it with hot water. We can do 20 barrels in six hours and we'll be done and then let it ferment. We just got to put enough yeast nutrient in, glucose and a little bit of malt extract. So that's one question I ask people all the time is what their prediction is. You think that more breweries are going to do stuff like that? I know breweries are already. Yeah. It is happening and nobody knows it because they don't have to label it any different. The one brewery I worked at also had a fairly substantial and robust soda production facility. With the extracts, you know, you kind of get to learn what labeling on beer means. And I had to crush, I love crushing people's dreams. Oh, there's this banana bacon porter from such and such brewery. I've been trying to get a hold of one of these bottles for like six months. I finally got it. And I looked at it and I go, dude, you know, that's just extract flavor poured in the beer, right? You could not at home yourself. I go, look at the label. It says with natural flavors. They didn't put bacon in the beer. They didn't put maple syrup in it. And maple syrup is fucking expensive. It is. I've made beer with maple syrup before. I said, it's all extract. It's basically soda that they mix with beer. You know, there's like this, there's an allure to the the concept of these beer flavors. You might as well just take advantage of the fact that 
the consumer doesn't actually know what they're drinking, even though they think they know what they want. It would save a hell of a lot of floor space. You wouldn't have to have a malt mill. You wouldn't have to have mash tun. Technically, you, you need maybe some sort of water reclamation, but it wouldn't have to be a hot liquor tank so much. It could be anything at that point. I mean, yeah, you can make it with an on-demand water heater. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could get one manually made or whatever that you know that let you kick 190, 200 degree water into a tank and just mix goo together and put it in the fermenter. I'd still sanitize it. So other question, there's almost 10,000 breweries in the United States now. They were probably, I didn't look back, but let's say somewhere around six when you opened. How many do you think is too many? I thought we were kind of at too many when I opened. I had serious hesitation because of me being in the hiring process to become an ETF agent at the time. <laughs> Combined with the fact that in my area, there was Krogs Brewing Company. There was Appalachian Brewing Company. There's a brewery called Evergreen. There was a small place at a strip mall. I mean, we're talking not even three miles away from where I was at. New Fangled. I actually lived a five-minute walk from this place called Boneshire. It's a small little, I think a 10-barrel or a five-barrel brew house, 10-barrel fermenters. There's a winery close to me that was doing cider. They started doing beer, I mean, a mile away. Within another five miles, there's probably two or three towards Hershey in between me and where Krogs was at. I kind of, one of the reasons why I went forward with it was a lot of the places were so small and or they also produced not good beer. But I was like, maybe there's room in this local market for a larger facility that can make good beer. So I said, well, let's do it. You know, I, I looked at my wife and I said, they want me to do this. You know, I don't think it's a bad deal. She kind of became a single mom temporarily felt like I was out of town, but I was there a lot. I think we were at too many then. I feel like the industry just as a whole kind of started to die around the same time. Mm-hmm. 2018 was a really bad time to open a brewery for many reasons. I was definitely in it, so I was mostly in my world. But in Texas, that was the turning point where I would say it stagnated maybe for that year, year and a half, and then it just died. It just fell a fuck apart. And yeah, during and that time, we kept opening breweries. <laughs> yeah. And especially like in the Belgian side of things, it's like one of the episodes I listened to previously was the discussion of like Shelton Brothers, fairly decent depth. And I feel like their absence in the market removed Belgian beers from the shelves in a lot of places from the consumer's view. And they did a good job of pushing them out into the forefront. And I feel like by removing, by Shelton Brothers being gone, it kind of impacted that style of beer domestically produced because people didn't know what it was yeah just the fan base moved on and i think the flavor profile it was not you had to be i was trying to be like a little trendy and creative it was something i always wanted to do but never did it and it just so happened to be like it's a little bit more of a trend right now i guess i made a belgian triple and instead of using dextrose or you know brewing syrup or something like that i bought buckets of white wine grape and dose the fermenter after like two days of fermentation out of a 15 gallon keg while it was circulating and dosed the i mean this stuff's like it smells like raisin puree basically yeah and it fermented out to like 11 and a half percent alcohol like it had a nice acidity it was real bright i couldn't drink it because the concentrate is sulfited oh really i can't really consume sulfites high concentration it flushes me uh, really bad in my face i kind of have like an allergic reaction to it a little bit people liked it it was well received it moved reliably but it moved slowly Mm -hmm. so i don't know sure wine wine beer hybrid kind of a thing i've read multiple times like over the years but i'm not entirely sure like where the the mark i think that's something that could have laid from like a quality perspective 
as a friend. I, I don't know how long people are going to put up with brewers selling them $24 four pack of sugary fruit syrups poured into the cheapest malt based beverage they can whip out of the brew. I mean, I, I wouldn't think it was going to last as long as it has. So there's that going for it. But I would agree. I, right. None of it makes any damn sense. Like <laughs> some of these beers are coming in a can uh, with a residual sugar content. You throw a, you throw a hydrometer in it. It's like, you know, some of these things are like 12 bricks plus of fruit sugar post-fermentation. It's just wild to me. And if they're not putting some kind of preservative in it to prevent it from fermenting on the shelf, most of these places don't have filters. And if they do have a filter, they're not sterile filtering. Well, if you did, you so, wouldn't, it wouldn't be as punchy a fruit flavor because it would filter some of the pectin and shit out. So ultimately, that style of beer is not going to work that way. It's an unsustainable thing from a business growth perspective because they can never distribute it because they would have to change the distribution model to all cans being refrigerated. Even on the drive home. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how many stories have you heard of that happening? Cans exploding in the back of people's carts. And no one seems to care. They they just keep posting about it and then laughing and making a scene or whatever, but they're still buying them. Yeah, like they don't... It's a great business model, though. Like, instead of pouring the sediment and crap down the drain, they're selling it to everybody in a can. It's it's true beer. It's good. Right. Why, Why not... Why pay the sewage company to deal with it when... You can let somebody take it home and pay top dollar. Well, so tell me a couple of other questions, but tell me what was, what's the biggest regret you have in the career of owning the brewery? Um, well, I, you know, the, I guess the biggest regret I have about the business was going down the path of assuming that we were going to be able to grow into what the original business plan was. So we spent, you know, whatever we got, the 50, the 20 barrel brew house, and that's a big tank. I don't know how much money we would have saved by downsizing because equipment costs are more labor than material at this size to produce the equipment. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we might have been able to save thirty to $50,000, I think, by downsizing to a more reasonable brew size. However, that wasn't the problem. But I still feel like I didn't do my best to size the place for the business that we had i sized it for the business once yeah which kind of makes sense but obviously with hindsight being 2020 we also were not planning on a pandemic from shutting the country down essentially for two years yeah or, or more i knocked down kind of everyone's I guess, expectation i guess of what a good weekend is i nowadays. would say that it's, it's still not right like it's not normal yeah. I went and met a friend that lives in Florida. He's visiting parents. Uh, we went and shot a couple rifles this morning and ate lunch together. And there was an individual walking into the pet shop with a gun. Still? That's, I guess that's my biggest regret is I feel like I could have done a better job of sizing stuff from an equipment perspective because that was like my role in the startup. But I also, I think, you know, I, part, I have to admit that that wasn't the problem. So actually... That was, Dan Arthur put on my Facebook post, what was the problem that he wants to know? What do you what do you blame one, two, and three for the reasons that the brewery had to shut down? I would blame one unrealistic weekly revenue projection. Two, on the food service side of things, we never had somebody that took the kitchen seriously from a business perspective and we kind of lost it from the beginning. And three you know, I'll put some of the blame on me. Maybe I could have been trendier or more on trend with some of the beer stuff. But at the same time, you know, we were going through COVID. So, you know, making a 30 keg batch of trendy beer, I feel like it would have outlasted the trend. 
So yeah. we never did it. I actually liked this trend, but it didn't live very long. The brute IPA trend. Oh, I yeah. actually kind of liked it, right? Uh, I made one and it lasted forever. Did it? So, yeah, I was kind of like over the whole concept of like, oh, here's a cool new trend. Let me make a beer to fit in this box. And I did it two or three times. It's like what was kind of like hitting everybody, like the whole milk tube thing and like the glass of Pilsner foam, you know, came and I think it's kind of gone at this point. But then I was like, are you guys doing milk pours? And we're like, you just want foam? I could do that. But no, I don't have side pour faucet. You don't need special side pour faucets to make a bad foamy pour. I can do it right now. <laughs> I can do it right now. Well, what, so, uh, what would you want the legacy of your time at Fandangle to be like what do you want people to remember uh you know i i think the thing i want to hang my hat on is i made very good beers that like you wouldn't regret ordering one of them <laughs> you know like they might not be one that you're gonna go on uh untapping go oh my god there's gotta be 15 pounds of raspberries in this keg everybody needs to get here now I was never trying to become that hype place because we're in a neighborhood. You can't piss off the entire neighborhood. Even if I wanted to do it and somehow was able to succeed, becoming that place that people stood in line for. Mm -hmm. Because that was going to create problems being where we were in a residential neighborhood. I made good beer, but it just wasn't probably exciting. Some girl walks up to you right now and says, hey, I'm starting a brewery next week. What's one thing you got to tell her? What's one thing you want her to not make the mistake of but between you and I, we know she probably will anyways. With that said, she's going to anyway. I mean, the mistake is doing it in the first place. <laughs> I try not to say that one all the time, but it always comes up. And it, I mean, yeah. Do you believe that there is a way to be very profitable in this industry? I think there is. And it's a really weird sweet spot of size and your ability to make your life work with it. And I think that is something in the 40 to 50 seat range with a small cheap brew house a reasonable fermentation capacity and you're like the general manager slash bartender you're in control of the production you're in control of the service almost like the family diner but it's the family brewery i think you could make that work if you get your cost per square foot low enough but I mean, everything, I mean, you have to clean your own draft lines at that point. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like you got to do everything because everything you add on to the bigger business, to the small business, is that much more of a revenue hit because their revenue is going to be smaller anyway with the lower seat capacity. So they have to do all of this shit themselves. They have to do all their own plumbing. They have to do all their own maintenance. They have to do all their draft line stuff. They, it's got to be like a family show almost or a couple close friends that I, when I say close, I mean like we're going to help you move the dead body close. Not like we went to high school together and you have some money and I have some money. Let's do a business together. Be willing to live broke forever. And yeah, right. Like I'm talking like move dead bodies close because it's going to be rough and it's going to suck and you're not going to make the money you thought you were going to make. You'll be lucky think in the end to live the life of a bank teller after putting all the work in to running your own brewery well so tell everybody where you're at now how can we find the beer you make today so i'm working uh with a he became a close friend through brewery ownership i guess we commiserate 
together about the bad of this industry in a sense. Counterflag Brewery and Stillworks in Middletown, Pennsylvania. They have a distillery in addition to the brewery. So I'm currently there making beer. Basically, I'm the de facto brew house operator. They could, we have some normal beers. Well, I refer to it as normal beer, like Pilsner, Hefeweizen, and things like that. I haven't gotten a Kolsch out yet myself. Kolsch is on. Still the last brewer's Kolsch. So if anybody lists today where to go and visit. <laughs> you don't want uh, credit for that one. <laughs> it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> but... I've got a Pilsner out at this point. You know, we're making some hazy IPAs. They're actually good. They're not like crazy over the top body, but they're decent body and they're pretty soft. And they kind of changed my opinion of making them, but I still don't like brewing them all my oats. Yeah. I toyed around the idea of after the closure, just kind of like freelancing myself out as like a for hire brewer to all these small places around here. Kind of like to go along with that concept of like they'd have to get to like almost co-op. Mm-hmm. Some of these small places, they can't, you know, a brewer is going to want to make probably in the low end, like $40,000 to $50,000 right now just to live in this economy we have. And these places can't afford to pay that. So I thought, like, well, what if I, it was a thought of mine to, like, say, I could brew beer at, you know, say six different places and $12,000 a year. I brew at six different places. It's not a full time job at each place, but it's enough of a job for six places to become a full time job. And, I would end up with better pay. Well, if anybody's interested in, in uh, hiring, you just, just they can reach out to me and I'll forward your information over to them. <laughs> wow, we'll yeah. see if we can't get you a job through the podcast. So, yeah. I think I'm too old for the business at this point. I'm old, even though I'm only 39, I feel like it's uh, an industry that caters to the low attention span of people that like TikTok. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed in that sense because it wasn't before. It was sort of our dad's industry of well, I gotta do it especially it was it was all about quality beers and ones that had you know long terms and you know, international brands or vol these guys that just like have the standard brand name and it just changed so maybe maybe it changes back maybe it doesn't maybe the craft beer industry needs 15 more years to give some domestic brands that level of clout I don't know all right well it's been a fantastic interview I actually have learned some things from you that I haven't experienced in other interviews, which is always the value for me. The, the second that this gets boring, I'm going to stop doing it. So uh, I appreciate you sharing the story and I uh, wish you the best. And I will do my best to try to get someone to call you and give you a job. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's to double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.